The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune, featuring the seedier side of La Crosse, Wisconsin's history. These true stories are reflections of their time and place in history. The intent is not to diminish the human suffering that may have resulted from these events, but to bring light to ways in which people in the past experienced life. The city of La Crosse and the locations where these stories took place occupy part of a vast network of the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk, and we thank our Ho-Chunk community members and their ancestors for their stewardship of this area's land and history. A second chance at love seemed promising for Mrs. Hope McEldowney of West Salem, a widow of 44 years of age in 1913. Hope was the daughter of Leonard Lotridge, a successful pioneer farmer and businessman, and Mary Lotridge, a pioneer physician who locals claimed was only the second female doctor in the United States. Hope was born in La Crosse, but her parents moved to West Salem when Hope was a baby. Hope met and married James McEldowney from a pioneering West Salem family, but he died young in 1904, leaving Hope with their only child. Hope's mother passed only two years later in 1906, and her father followed in 1911, leaving Hope with a small fortune. Her son, Wendell, was married in 1911, so Hope was indeed independent. Without anyone to take care of at home anymore, I enjoyed venturing out on my own for the first time ever. I felt free and independent, feelings I had never expected to enjoy in my lifetime. Following in my mother's field of interest, I earned a degree from the Palmer School of Chiropractic in Davenport, Iowa. But I found that the fine folks of La Crosse and West Salem were not prepared to accept chiropractic as a professional medical treatment, and they shunned me. So I began exploring the world by myself and found Chicago a fun place to visit and easy to get to on the train, of course. Shopping on Michigan Avenue gave me such a thrill to be hobnobbing with Chicago's most affluent women. All the latest fashions and home decor were right there. (sighs) Well, I may have been middle-aged at this point in my life, but I had plenty of living yet to do. The mid-1800s saw a rise in spiritualism across the United States. People claiming to be mediums or clairvoyants would read fortunes or channel the spirit of a long-departed loved one from beyond the grave for a fee. Hope McEldowney met a clairvoyant on one of her jaunts to Chicago named Professor Crane, who operated a bookstore on upscale Michigan Avenue with occult rooms in the back. She became a regular client, and the two became more than just friends. Oh my, that Professor Charles Crane was such a looker. He was so handsome and suave. He bought me an automobile, and eventually we became engaged. Imagine that, a 44-year-old widow like me engaged to a young 29-year-old man. I was giddy with excitement. He also advised me with my investments, which I appreciated since my first husband handled all of my financial affairs and made sure we were well enough off at the time of his death. Well, upon Charles' insistence, I invested $15,000 in cash in railroad bonds, For long-term stability, I always say to invest wisely in staples that people will always need. After giving my fiancé the money, I returned to my home in West Salem, anxious for the bonds to arrive. After all, my first small investments with Professor Crane quickly earned large returns, so I knew I was investing wisely. The railroad investment bonds Hope was expecting never did arrive in the mail. She began to suspect something and appealed to the Chicago police. With a police escort, she visited the rooms where Professor Crane operated his bookstore, but found the rooms empty of furniture and belongings. 
Hope found out from the building's janitor that Crane had up and left quickly. The police offered no real help. Hope was furious and embarrassed. Her intimate relationship with Crane would be exposed to the world, but she was not about to let a crook get away with her dignity and her $15,000 in cash, the equivalent of over $450,000 today. So she hired a private detective to find Professor Crane and recoup her money. Hope's son Wendell issued a statement to the press, verifying the story, but denying that his mother was engaged to the man, stating, The rumor was based on idle gossip of some of her old neighbors in West Salem. A little over a month after I complained to the Chicago detectives about my situation, a lady friend and I went to Lusk, Wyoming, which is where my detective E.P. Cunningham of Milwaukee caught up with Professor Crane. It turns out his name is actually James Ryan. Goes by Jimmy. Yes, he is a real con artist, all right. Not only did I have to travel across the continent to Wyoming, where Jimmy was living in luxury, but I had to fight strong political influence to get him arrested. Thankfully, the detective was able to convince the town cowboys and judge that my Professor Crane and James Ryan were in fact the same person, despite all the bribes that Jimmy's friends palmed the town cowboys. Turns out Jimmy swindled a lot of people out of their hard-earned money, including other women. It bothers me to no end to think I fell for his scheming. I am so mad at myself. Well, he won't be doing this to anyone else if I have anything else to say about it. With the help of the assistant state's attorney, George Bliss, we were able to have Jimmy extradited back to Chicago to stand trial. George, tell him the rest of the story, won't you? I suspected something more than just a con artist at work in this case. I felt sorry for Hope and the others like her, but she was determined to bring Jimmy to justice, and that is just what she did. I found other women also willing to testify, so our team began to build a case for the state. Turns out Hope was referred to as Jimmy's 38, a slang term for victim. Jimmy had a boss named Christian Barney Birch. He was a saloon keeper and politician who wielded considerable influence in Chicago. Ryan and his brother operated the bookstore, which was a cover for their clairvoyant parlor down on Michigan Avenue. We were able to get Jimmy behind bars awaiting trial, but Birch posted the bail money and was out on the streets of downtown near the Rialto when shots suddenly rang out and passersby took cover fearing for their safety. After the skirmish, Birch was down with a bullet in his leg. Two policemen had shot Birch from across the street and Birch returned fire. But why? Here's where it gets really interesting. The clairvoyant parlor was protected through graft payments made to Birch, whose saloon was just a few blocks away. Then, Birch paid Chicago police detectives to protect Jimmy's place as well as Birch's saloon. The cops shot Birch so he wouldn't testify against them or turn them in. Birch, in the hospital, confessed everything and told of collecting police graft money over a period of years, specifically for the clairvoyant trust and its protection in particular, but their reach was more than that. Wiretapping, swindling, and organized crime rings. Birch and Jimmy were sent to the Joliet State Prison to think about their crimes. Now the state's attorney's office had significant leverage, and our entire legal team was focused on cracking this crime ring. We unofficially offered immunity to Birch and Jimmy for their crimes to testify against the Chicago police detectives regarding the grafting scheme. It worked. Jimmy and Birch were brought from the Joliet pen to testify, and Jimmy explained that he was a clever confidence man. He told of paying Birch for police protection and of how the money was split between Chicago Chief of Detectives Halpin and Sergeant O'Brien. In the end, several members of the police went to prison, including Halpin and O'Brien. One of the policemen who shot Birch, Big Bill Egan, actually killed himself in prison. My boss, Maclay Hoyne, 
had what seemed like the entire city of Chicago police and politicians under surveillance, with 12 powerful men in particular told to not leave the city or face arrest. He declared in the press that the decks were cleared for the sweeping investigation into protected vice and crime in Chicago. My office mate got a nice promotion to first assistant state's attorney when all the dust settled on this case. He was the one who masterminded the prosecution of Birch and the Ryan brothers, as well as the police graft case, among other big high-profile cases. After the policemen were held accountable in court and the witness testimony of Birch and Jimmy confirming the police graft and organized crime was no longer needed, the pair were pardoned for their crimes, including the one committed against Hope McEldowney. While we don't know if she was ever able to recoup her financial losses, McEldowney is credited with not only discovering and blowing the whistle on the Clairvoyant Trust, but opening the door for investigators to blow the lid off of a huge organized crime ring and police graft in Chicago. The Chicago police force underwent many reforms and many men were dismissed. In McClay Hoyne's tenure as Cook County State's Attorney from 1912 to 1920, his prosecuting staff procured over 5,000 penitentiary convictions. Oh, those crooks got what they deserved, and I am happy that I was able to open up the door for prosecutors to break up organized crime in Chicago for a time. But I was sore to see Jimmy Ryan get out of jail early. His sentence wasn't long enough to start with. Why, lying and swindling the elderly and others out of their money in such a devious manner, and then living high on the hog off their money? Hope married again on Christmas Day in 1918, at age 50, to a 42-year-old salesman named William Sager. They lived out the rest of their modest days in Minneapolis. She devoted her time and talents to the Minneapolis Society for the Blind. She died in 1936 and is buried with her first husband in a McEldowney plot in Nishanik Cemetery, just north of West Salem. And now I'd like to welcome in Anita Taylor-Doring, Senior Archivist and Archives Department Manager at the La Crosse Public Library, who did some of the initial research for this story. Hope Lotridge McEldowney Sager exhibited similarities to her mother, Dr. Mary Elizabeth Parker Finney Lotridge, in her fight for justice. It was said that Dr. Lotridge was everywhere a force for righteousness. Dr. Lotridge was born in Ohio in 1826, and her first husband was Dr. Noble Finney. It is said that she became interested in the practice of medicine by following him on his rounds. After his death, she pursued some formal training by obtaining attendance certificates from the Newton Clinical Institute at Cincinnati, Ohio in 1855. At the time when Mary Finney took these courses, there were few restrictions on the practice of medicine and surgery. Many practitioners had little or no medical education, and there was no formal licensing at this time. It is unclear if Mary actually graduated or completed a required series of classes, but she did seek some medical education. Later, in 1855, as a young widow with two small daughters, Mary left Ohio and joined her father and unmarried sisters on a journey to La Crosse. By December of that year, she opened a professional office downtown. A newspaper article quoted in the La Crosse County History stated, Female Physicians... Mrs. Finney, whose professional card appeared, appears like a lady of talent and mind, worthy of the profession she has chosen, and well-fitted for the discharge of her duties. Doctors Finney's two daughters both died young. In August 1861, she married Leonard Lotridge in La Crosse. They had one child together, Hope. In 1875, the family moved to West Salem, 
and bought an octagonal house with an attached barn, formerly owned by Dr. Horace Palmer. Dr. Lotridge was then able to hitch up her horse and buggy before going out on calls, similarly to an attached garage of today. In the early days in the West, preparation for practicing medicine was simply a year of reading medicine with a practicing physician for one year, followed by a year's attendance at a medical college. The college attendance requirement was sometimes overlooked in small communities. As far as researchers could tell, Dr. Lotridge was not associated with the La Crosse County Medical Society, which was founded in 1859. Medical societies were given the authority in 1849 in Wisconsin to examine students of medicine and surgery and to grant licenses under which they might practice. Nonetheless, as Mrs. Finney, she added on the MD credentials following her name, while the men called themselves Dr. An historical essay on Dr. Lotridge by Mrs. Ida Tilson states, Dr. Lotridge's practice of over 40 years was wholly in La Crosse County. She worked up a large following as a general practitioner and had a list of over 1,000 little citizens who she had helped into the world. She loved to call these her babies. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell is credited with becoming the first woman to earn a medical degree in the United States in 1849. However, there is no doubt that Dr. Mary Finney Lotridge was the first practicing female physician in La Crosse County and certainly was a pioneer in the field in the state and the country, facing many hardships, obstacles, and prejudices. She died just before her 80th birthday in 1906 when her surviving daughter Hope was a widow herself at age 38. Thanks for listening.